Henley, Reading. Okay. Ta-da. The voice. River Radio. Of the Thames Valley. Paperback Good morning, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. Win tickets for the Henley Literary Festival. And we'll be joined by Tilly for her Young Adult Fiction Addiction series. And we've got Jessica Dean from the Henley Literary Festival. Good morning. You're listening to Heather Adams and Julian Ashton on Turning Pages. Over the next hour, we'll be keeping you up to date with news from the world of books, new releases, bestsellers and recommendations of some great books to read. Thank you for joining us today. Indeed, thank you. We've got a packed show coming up today. Julian, Julian, thank you for joining me this morning. (laughs) Well, I'm so pleased to be back after a technical error sort of abandoned me to Siberia last week. (laughs) It's so nice to have you back. (laughs) Thank you. And talking about Siberia, that's what we're going to that's what we're going to abandon you as well (laughs) later on today. Oh, what a bit of a link there, eh? (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to be joined by Jessica Dean, who's the organizer and program director of the children's programme at the Henley Literary Festival, which runs from the 2nd to the 10th of October this year. And so do listen out for your chance to win two free tickets to one of the fabulous sessions at the festival. Um, Tilly Brogan will be joining us to discuss her first choice in Tilly's YA fiction addiction. And we're going a bit highbrow with a choice of just one of our favourite Russian novels to entice you with. And once again, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news. Indeed we have. And just to remind you, in case you've forgotten already, you're listening to Turning Pages on River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. uh, particularly if you've got a, a, a special author or you're reading a particular book at the moment, which you think is fantastic, do drop us a line and let us know. And if you're running a local book club, also let us know. And if you're a, a local author, please get in touch. Now, you can contact me on julian at river.radio with any uh, suggestions you may have, and we'd like to air them on future shows. Excellent. So let's begin with a roundup of those interesting tidbits that we've spotted in the press. And of course, I've got to start with Sally Rooney's third novel, Beautiful World, Where Are You? The day has dawned where we can now buy it in bookshops. (laughs) <laughs> this is much awaited for her first two novels so in 2017 she did conversations with friends and then in 2018 the following year normal people uh, was written and that put young irish author sally rooney onto the literary limelight she's still only 30 and she's being labeled as salinger for the snapchat generation and the first great millennial novelist Ike. So, did you see normal people on the TV? No, I didn't. No. I must admit I didn't. I'm much more of a a book person, I think. But Mm. it was a massive hit. And her book has now sold more than 3 million copies and been translated into 46 languages. 
And um, Sally Rooney's won the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award and became the youngest ever recipient of the Costa Novel Award in its history. So I think it's fair to say she's a good author. Indeed, um, I know some achievements there. Yeah. So this new novel is uh, it takes its title from a 1788 poem by the German poet Friedrich Schiller. Just so I thought you'd mm-hmm. let me know that. A bit of continental there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So it tells the story of two Irish couples, Alice and Felix, a wonderkind novelist and a warehouse picker who met on a dating app, and also the couple Eileen and Simon, who were childhood friends turned lovers. So Rooney, who's a bit of a fan of Jane Austen and Henry James, describes this novel as having 19th century engines. And she's returned to the themes of love and friendship, class and power. And I think this is going to be the book for many book clubs out there. I certainly think it it it, uh, it will be from the sound of that. Now I've got one which I think is also of interest, but uh, on the on the nonfiction side, uh, and it's a, a, a book by Justine Picardy, who's a former editor of Harper's Bazaar, and she's written a fantastic book about uh, about Miss Dior, who's the sister of Christian Dior. Oh yeah. Um, yep, the namesake of the perfume and um, one of Christian Dior's uh, most gorgeous dresses. Yes. Yeah, and it's hard to believe when you go into the book um, from this fabulous uh, couture lifestyle that she led in the 1950s. I mean, she was both a model and an inspiration for her brother. That Catherine had led a very harrowing uh, life in her 20s. Um, She was arrested by the Gestapo in 1944 as a member of the resistance in Paris. Mm, Yeah, yes, exactly. Now, the family um, lived in Provence, which at the time was unoccupied by the Germans, but she fell in love with the hero of the resistance. And in 1941, um, it she ended up in Paris. Mm-hmm. Now, also a little bit of a, um, a, a historical note here, which really rather shocked me. Apparently, only 1% of the French population supported the resistance movement. Wow. Yeah, That's exactly. And her, but, and, and, uh, her elder brother, but probably, you know, trying to keep uh, keep things going, uh, continued to make dresses for the wives of German um, occupiers, which is sort of interesting juxtaposition there. Mm. Now, uh, the Gestapo re- arrested her, forced her into a car, blindfolded her and drove her to an interrogation centre in the heart of the city and basically she was subjected to punching kicking slapping and was plunged naked in a bath of cold water filled with ice with her hands uh, bound and she was often left there for about 45 minutes uh, then uh, being submerged and then re-questioned um, she stuck it out she failed to provide any information and then she was deported to Ravensbrook which was the female only concentration camp on me, <clears throat> where many died. And this is the very famous camp where the poor Jewish uh, musicians had to, to play music when all the, the new entrants came in. Mm. Um, now, she spoke very rarely of the horrors, and the story has been put, put together um, with experiences from others <clears throat> who were tortured, pardon me, and when she got back to Paris after the war, she was so emaciated that her brother didn't even recognise her. Um, but she did, however, survive. And this is an, a, a really lovely end to the story, if you can call it a lovely end. She actually desi- died in her 90s, still married to her resistance hero lovely. husband. Yeah. yeah. Now, this book on Miss Dior, it's, the title is um, Miss Dior, A Story of Courage and Couture, contains more than 400 archive photographs, 
a, a lot of the very moving and evocative. And it reminds us um, that when we look back at the seemingly gorgeous era, uh, that there's a story behind that does not necessarily glister with gold. Yes, because those dresses, those sort of new age dresses with the um, the skirts, full, full skirts, mm, are just so exactly. beautiful, aren't they? Absolutely, really. I mean, yeah. And the there's, a, there's a beautiful, yes, filled skirts, narrow waist, yeah. really charming and beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, Stunning, stunning. That's great. Uh, really good book, sounds there. Now, a bit of a stop press here. This Ooh, morning yes. popped up in my uh, my publishing um, email chat was that Jamie Oliver's just launched his latest book. And as you can imagine, straight into number one of the official top 50, straight away, which is... Uh, Brilliant. It's his 19th number one since records began, which is just phenomenal. That is. His latest book is called Together and was inspired from his time during lockdown. So the emphasis is firmly on sharing delicious meals rather than spending all your time stressed in the kitchen. And the uh, Sunday Times was actually reviewing um, Together a couple of weeks ago. And I did the jerk pork um, mm-hmm. for Sunday dinner the other day and it was rather nice even though oh, I good. say so myself oh excellent excellent <laughs> well for all the the fans of Agatha Christie <clears throat> pardon me Miss Marble has been given a second life oh, um, she was <laughs> as you know she was introduced to the reading public actually interesting in 1927 in the Royal Magazine and the last of the Marple novels was published posthumously um, 45 years ago in 1976 now a series of 12 new short stories uh, will be penned by a number of uh, formidable authors and um, they'll each feature Miss Marple written in their own inimitable style while staying true to the hallmarks of the traditional mystery. Um, all the authors are Christie devotees and they include, um, not exclusively, but include Val McDermott, the Scottish crime writer, and uh, the novelist Kate Moss. So we have a, quite a nice lineup there. Right. And they're going to be coming out uh, from September next year. So keep your eye out on that. And of course, Poirot has already been resurrected by Sophie Hanna in a number of best-selling titles, which included The Monogram Murders. Oh, yeah. Yes, I read those. They were they were great. Were they good? Yeah. 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 So I've got to say, I must admit, I'm looking forward to the uh, the new look Agatha Christie, Miss Marple. Uh, yes, and and then hopefully as well for those who who uh, who prefer to watch, maybe they'll be turned into television series too. Oh yes, fingers. But crossed. you must read the books first. That's yes. very very important. So I've decided. And Julian, you might want to join me in this. Oh, right, yes. We're going to start a new exclusive book club. So at the moment, I've just inveigled my husband, Mike, (laughs) any possible close friends who might wish to join me. But I've got this little little twist in the book club thing. We're going to take it in turns to choose a book. But then a month later, we'll go somewhere inspired by the book for our discussion. So that could be a lunch or a drink or a location or even a holiday, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And inspired by our Russian theme to end the show today, the first book is going to be The Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov. Oh, yes. A masterpiece mm-hmm. of 20th century Russian literature, which screams a sophisticated drinking opportunity if ever there was one mm, in a, in a month's like time. So I've got to say, I must admit, the reason this book was chosen was we went to a 
fabulous production of Black Snow at the Camden Fringe Festival. Uh, Black Snow was written also by Bulgakov, which is the the connection. Mm -hmm. And the production was written and produced and performed by this really fabulous um, actor called Alistair Bourne. Definitely somebody to look out for. It was a really marvellous mm-hmm. cast. It was just four of them. And it was a comedy set around North who writes such a bad book that he plans on committing suicide, only for that story to be picked up um, as, a, as a play. And then it goes on to be incredibly mm-hmm. successful. It was really funny and it was absolutely amazing. And, but also... That's the thing about Russian books, isn't it? They always make you think. But it also, so 1930s, Stanley's Russia, it tells a tale which I thought wasn't too far away removed from the position of many authors in Hollywood today. Really? Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, Gosh. it was a brilliant production. Well done, Alistair Bourne. And uh, Master and Margarita, his most famous work of uh, Bulgakov, is uh, going to be read now. So we'll report back in a month's time. Oh, right, indeed. So, Julian. Yep. Um, I forget my place. This is River Radio. You are listening to New Pages with Heather Adams and Julian Ashton. Thank you for listening. The Henley Literary Festival is not just an extravaganza of excellent authors um, to appeal to adults, but children have also been given the chance to be wowed by their favourite authors too. Uh, we'll be joined by Jessica Dean, the programme director for the children's section at, of the Henley Festival. Um, and she'll be talking about what's going to uh, be available. Uh, plus, plus, there is a chance to win two tickets to the festival. So you must pay attention to the interview. Absolutely, and that's coming up soon. But first, we're going to go to Tilly's YA Fiction Addiction. Um, And Tilly Brogan is joining us today, and she's going to be talking to us about one of her favourite reads of the year, The Six of Crows. So before we do that, let's listen to a piece from the book. Gaz Brecker didn't need a reason. Those were the words whispered on the streets of Ketterdam, in the taverns and coffee houses, in the dark and bleeding alleys of the pleasure district known as the Barrel. The boy they called Dirty Hands didn't need a reason any more than he needed permission to break a leg, sever an alliance, or change a man's fortunes with a turn of a card. Of course they were wrong, Inedge considered as she crossed the bridge over the black waters of the Burr's Canal to the deserted main square that fronted the exchange. Every act of violence was deliberate, and every favour came with enough strings attached to stage a puppet show. Kaz always had his reasons. Inedge could just never be sure they were good ones, especially tonight. Inedge checked her knives, silently reciting their names as she always did when she thought there might be trouble. It was a practical habit, but a comfort too. The blades were her companions. She liked knowing that they were ready for whatever the night might bring. She saw Kaz and the others gathered near the great stone arch that marked the eastern entrance to the exchange. Three words had been carved into the rock above them. Engent, forbent, alment, industry, integrity, prosperity. She kept close to the shuttered shop fronts that lined the square, avoiding the pockets of flickering gaslight by the street lamps. As she moved, she inventoried the crew that Kaz had brought with him. Dirks, Rotty, Muzzin and Keeg, Annika and Pim, and his chosen seconds for tonight's parley, Jesper and Big Bolliger. 
They jostled and bumped each other, laughing, stamping their feet against the cold snap that had surprised the city this week, the last gasp of winter before spring began in earnest. They were all bruisers and brawlers, culled from the younger members of the dregs that people Kaz trusted most. In Edge noted the glint of knives tucked into their belts, lead pipes, weighted chains, axe handles studded with rusty nails, and here and there the oily gleam of a gun barrel. She slipped silently into their ranks, scanning the shadows near the exchange for signs of black-tipped spies. Three ships, Jesper was saying. The shoe sent them. They were just sitting in First Harbour, cannons out, red flags flying, stuffed to the sails with gold. Big Bollinger gave a low whistle. Would have liked to see that. Would have liked to steal that, replied Jesper. Half the merchant castle was down there flapping and squawking, trying to figure out what to do. Don't they want the shoe to pay their debts? Big Bollinger asked. Kaz shook his head, dark hair glinting in the lamplight. He was a collection of hard lines and tailored edges. Sharp jaw, lean build, a wool coat snug across his shoulders. Yes and no, he said in his rock-salt rasp. It's always good to have a country in debt to you. Makes for friendlier negotiations. Morning. Thank you Morning for joining to you too. Thank you for joining us. So it is Tilly's YA fiction addiction coming up. And you're going to talk about the Six of Crows today. So Six of Crows is my first five-star read of 2021. I absolutely loved it. I know we're in September, but honestly, I think it's one of the only five-star reads I've had this year. So it's by Lee Bardugo and the publisher is Henry Holt and Company. Uh-huh. So a little bit of information there. So basically, Six of Crows is set in the Grishaverse, which is the same universe Shadow and Bone is set in. You might have seen Shadow and Bone on Netflix. That is another trilogy also set in this universe. But I don't necessarily think you have to read Shadow and Bone to understand Six of Crows and to enjoy Six of Crows. But if you wanted to, it'd be like a nice way to contextualize the characters and the universe. But honestly, if you don't want to read Shadow and Bone, I reckon you'll be fine. Right. Um, So they've got the same characters, are they? The Grisha are these magical people. And well, apparently it's not magical abilities. They use matter in the universe to change things. And there's different types of Grisha. So in Shadow and Bone, it's largely focused on the Grisha, whereas Six of Crows, they're sort of in the background. Um, But to understand the Grisha laws and the Grisha universe, you can read Shadow and Bone as well. Right. So Six of Crows is set a couple of years later. Brand new characters in a different country. Okay, so that sounds great. So I I saw it reviewed as Ocean's Eleven set in the Games yes. of Thrones world, <laughs> which sounds brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so it's essentially a heist story. So there's this new drug that a scientist has made that affects the Grisha and makes them have all these powerful magical abilities. And obviously people don't want that to happen because that would change the whole game of the universe and the Grishaverse. So it's basically this wealthy merchant hires six people, and those are the six main characters, to go and li- liberate the scientist who is currently being held hostage in a prison. <sighs> so it is a heist story, but I feel like it's, it goes so much into the characters' backstories as well. So it's sort of like a mix between present high story and amazing flashbacks. And you get to learn so much about these characters who I just, they have my whole heart, these six characters. They're just so, so good. Fantastic. So do you identify with one particular character or they all have got bits of bits of you in them? Oh, they're all amazing. I think these are some of the best written characters I've ever read. They are wow. just 
amazing. So the six of them, the there's the gang leader called Kaz, and he's got a really, really sad backstory that will just break your heart. But then he assembles five other teammates to work with him. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna talk through the teammates. I feel yeah, like that might be yeah. quite good. So you've got Inej, who used to be an acrobat, and she's like a spy, and she runs along rooftops, and she eavesdrops, and she's also great with knives. She's really, really cool. Then you've got Nina, who's actually a Grisha, so she she's a heart render, so she can control someone's internal organs. She, she can like slow someone's heart rate, make someone pass out. She is super, super cool. Um, she's also plus size, which is amazing, so there's really good representation there. You've got Wylan, who is a runaway, but he's also the son of the merchant who the dregs but he's ran away from his dad and he's like joined the secret gang because he wants to get revenge and you'll find out why him and his dad have such a frosty relationship you've got jesper who he's really great with guns and he gambles and he's like a massive flirt and he's just such a such a funny character i've never read a character as funny as jesper um, and the last one is Mateus, and he is a soldier but he was born in a country in the universe that hates the Grisha people. So there's a really nice story between him and Nina, who obviously is Grisha. And there's like an enemy to lovers romance there. I won't say anything else. So these six crazily different characters come together in just more ways than you would imagine. And it's, it's just amazing how they work together to do this heist. You find out their backstories. And yeah, it's just it's just a great, great book. Fantastic. So you were saying that it's also part of the Shadow and Bone. Um, so it's set a couple of years later to Shadow and Bone. Right. OK. And is this all part of a Netflix? So there's three books in the Shadow and Bone trilogy and the Netflix series just focuses on, well, currently season one is just the first book. But they've actually introduced these six characters into this series. So because Six of Crows is set a couple of years after they've made their own like prequel story, which introduces oh. all the different characters. So it's completely fictional, but you do get to meet the characters in the show. And I'm just going to say they have cast them so, so well. Like kudos to Netflix. All six of these characters has been amazingly cast. Just as you sort of see them in your mind. Honestly, I think the whole fandom has no qualms with how these characters talk. Fantastic. So basically, you can watch the Netflix series and then read Six of Crows. The the bit in Shadow and Bone is fictional where the crows meet, but I feel like they've written it well and I feel like it does flow quite nicely into the book. And then Six of Crows is duology, is that right? So there's just... Yeah, so there's the second one is Crooked Kingdom, which I don't think is as good, but obviously the characters are still there and it is the second part. There is a big cliffhanger at the end of Six of Crows, but I think... I think Six of Crows stands by itself as well, but you need to read the second one as well if you love the characters as much as I So do you think the cliffhanger makes it a complete book though? Or does it force you to sort of read the second one? It's a good question. The cliffhanger affects one of my favourite characters, Inej. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Spoiler alert. I was going to say, that kind of, it, I didn't see how it affected her. It could be a good effect, it could be a bad effect. <laughs> Sorry, guys. But actually, if you listen to Julian, he always gives the ending of every story away. So I try, I try to be as vague as possible because I'm used to reviewing books. But yeah, so something happens to Inej. I won't say if it's good or bad, but you love Inej so much, you need to read the next book to find ah. out how she gets out of it. Well, that's great for the author to do something like that. Definitely, definitely. So Lee Bardugo yeah. is a Times number one best-selling author. I mean, she's, yes. uh, she sells millions of copies of this thing. So where in her writing does Six of Crows come? Is it an early book for her? No, so she wrote Shadow and Bone quite a while ago, about maybe over five years ago, I think. Um, 
because a big a big part of Shadow and Bone is obviously there's the fandom, but there's the fandom on Tumblr, the yeah. social media app. And there's quite a big book community on Tumblr. Did a lot of like fan casting, thought the Shadow and Bone characters would be. And Lee Bardugo actually used some of that fan casting in her Netflix adaptation. So in, I think it was in 2012, everyone cast Ben Barnes as the main character in Shadow and Bone. And then she actually got Ben Barnes to play that character six years later in the I Netflix that's series. Clever. So the fans love it. Yeah, it's, it's really good. I think she did a really good job with that. But it's like exactly seeing your fan cast come to life. It was crazy. Fantastic. So you're saying that one of the characters is a size plus character. So I was reading that there's lots of representation of the... There is. Of- I have never read a book with so much representation. It's amazing. There's lots of race representation. So two of the main six characters are people of colour. So that's Jasper and Inej and some of the other characters from this country called Shuhan. And that could be read as East Asian. So there's lots of rep there. Um, There's also lots of rep for the LGBT community. So Jasper and Nina bisexual, while is gay. And it's not confirmed, but the popular headcanon is that Kaz and Inej are asexual. So there's lots of LGBT rep as well there's also disability rep because Kaz has a limp that he sustained when he was younger in an accident and Lee Bardugo actually suffers from osteonecrosis which means she also uses a cane so I think Kaz was like her source of inspiration for that so there is tons of representation and I've never read a book with characters that are so rich in representation and just I think Lee Bardugo writes it that it's just it's part of their character like I feel like some author will make it their whole plot line where it's just like an extra layer because it's just part of their personality it's part of who they are rather than being the only thing that they are yeah that's really really well I think that's really important isn't it because we're all different and but we're all ourselves so all we are is just a little bit different from each other regardless of what that is I, I think she really really did well with representation for this book for sure ah fantastic and then of course Netflix has picked that up as well yeah, they've uh, yeah. yeah they've cast the correct people. It's off to Netflix and Lee Bardugo. Yeah. So remind us again of the title, the uh, author, and the publisher. So it's Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo, and the publisher is Henry Holt and Company. Fantastic, excellent. I'll put that on my list of things to yes. read. Yes, add it to your super super long to read list. <laughs> Brilliant, <laughs> Tilly. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Bye bye. See you next next month. Yeah, see you next month. That was very clever of um, um, Netflix to take the characters from the fandom in order to guarantee um, to guarantee an audience. I thought that was very good. Very slick, very, very slick indeed. Yes, anybody would think they're a multi-million pound corporation. Well, yes, indeed. <laughs> we are very much fans here of the Henley Literary Festival, going on to a totally different subject now. Yep, different and track altogether. Absolutely. And the Literary Festival is a superb addition to uh, the literary landscape of the Thames mm. Valley, I'd like to say. This year, the festival begins on the 2nd of October, but it's already started its virtual events, which are happening every Monday in September. Mm-hmm. So tickets for sessions are on sale now and we're very much hoping that you'll be popping along to the festival yourselves to listen to some of the authors. There's really something for everyone. Um, last week we chatted with Harriet Reed Ryan, who's the programme director of the main festival, and she was telling us about the non-fiction authors. And this week I've been chatting with Jessica Dean about the events that the children can attend. So there really is something for everyone, as I say. So let's hear 
um, a little bit about the conversation. Excellent. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So you're the programmer for the Children's Festival at the Henley Literary Festival coming up in October. So have you been involved in that festival? I have programmed the children's events for three years. So the first year was 2019 and was the Henley Literary Festival in all its glory. Last year was slightly different. We moved lots of things online, but you know, lots of lessons in that and new ways of doing things. And then this year uh, is the third year and we're back live, fingers crossed, but also taking out some of our events virtually and streaming those as well. So it's sort of a bit of a merge of my previous two Well, I think that's great, actually. I think because lots of people sometimes don't have the time to get to Henley, but want to get their children involved in the festival. So I think that's brilliant. Exactly. And we have a whole week of schools events and getting school children out for events can be very tricky, especially older children when you get into secondary school age. They don't have the time to get children on a minibus and take them out of school. So there are opportunities to get to other audiences if we are putting our events virtual, which we are. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. So straight on into then what's going to happen this year. So you, you're talking about a schools event, but also really it's mums and dads and getting children involved in actually the, the literary festival itself, isn't it, that you, you're doing at the festival? We have two weekends of public events and we have events for the smallest children up to we sort of we do have some YA events but in the main from um, toddlers up to age 12 wow um, then during the week we have schools events in the morning there's something for everyone I would say whatever your interest is come down to Henley we've got some really good people who will be talking about their books we've got authors we've got illustrators we've got workshops we have storytellers so really we hope to offer something for everyone oh that sounds amazing and you've got some um, really big names as well I was just looking at Michael Morpurgo, Joe Wicks, uh, Claire Balding. I mean, that's just incredible. We're really very lucky. I think people love to come to Henley because it's such a nice place. It's really picturesque. Some of our venues are really lovely. We have some children events this year in the River and Rowing Museum. We've got some at Phyllis Court. We've got some at Henley Town Hall. People enjoy coming and we'd like to think we look after them really well. So they come back and also we get good audiences and we're really grateful for the people of Henley and the surrounds for for coming down and supporting it because it means we get people to come to our festival year after year. Excellent. I totally agree. So tell me what you're looking forward to the most coming up this year. First of all, I'm looking forward to having events in real life. You know, that's the best part of the job. And I think I've really missed that. So that will be really seeing an author or an illustrator talking to the people who they wrote and created their books for is a really wonderful thing. Brilliant. And as a parent, when you take your kids to something and their imagination gets sparked or they find a series that they really want to read more about, that's also really fulfilling. So that's first of all what I'm really looking forward to. And then, you know, for individual events that I'm looking forward to we've got Liz Pichon who created the Tom Gates series she's never been to Henley before I'm really looking forward to meeting her um, Claire Balding's coming back she's been before um, she's got a book called Fall Off Get Back On and Keep On Going she's just at the she's done the Olympics she's at the Paralympics at the moment so it's really inspirational stories of courage and determination and resilience which I think is a very important um, message at the moment so lots of things to look forward to so the Claire Balding one is that who's that aimed for in terms of age group it's sort of nine plus, eight, nine plus, but I think 
I don't think you can be very prescriptive when you're saying a book is only for eight no. plus. You know, there are people who are six who could enjoy it or be have it read to them who would really enjoy it. And also that's a book that you can sort of dip in and out of. And equally, I don't think anyone who's 13 should be put off if someone says this book is for nine to 11 year olds so it's really quite broad I'd say yeah absolutely 12 13 and that sounds just like the sort of book I'd like to read as well (laughs) (laughs) you can get yourself a copy (laughs) (laughs) thank you and so in terms of age group is that all put on the website so if sort of you've got a little five-year-old for example you can look at the website and it'll tell you whether it's appropriate or not for them Yes, everything will have a age range and everything's got a description of what you might expect at those events. If you're unsure, then you can always contact us and find out, but it should be fairly self-explanatory. Great. Now, I was really interested that you've got workshops because I think sometimes some children actually want to do stuff as well. And they are really creative and amazing, aren't they? So tell me about the workshops that you're running. Well, children's events in the main are always really creative. Anyway, so we've got anyway, so we've got lots of illustrators who are coming. So Stephen Lenton is coming, Rob Bidolf is coming. So those are illustrators who will talk about their books, but they will also do a draw along. So everyone gets a pen and a piece of paper, and they can all learn to draw a character. And we've got Katja Balin who's coming to do a creative writing workshop. We've got the people from Wonderbly who create personalised books. They're an online provider of personalised books, so it's really sort of a book for a gift, a christening, or a birthday but they're running a workshop about making your own personal story so there's lots of things to get involved with lots of authors and illustrators um, make their event very interactive and that might be with drawing or storytelling so it's not just sitting there and listening we very much want people to get involved with the fun oh that's that sounds great now the schools events that are happening during the uh, the week are parents allowed to bring their children to, to those or not if you were a homeschooling parent definitely but they're during the school day so um they're at 10 a.m or 12 o'clock and they are for children who are five plus so if you had a three-year-old it wouldn't be they wouldn't be interested in those events per se but if you were homeschooling someone absolutely if you've got kids who are at home there's no reason why they can't come down and book a ticket just like anybody else Oh, great. So the school festival is absolutely open to people who are able to bring their children along. Yeah, exactly. We've got one secondary school event, which is with Liz Kessler, um, who wrote, has written a brilliant book called When the World Was Ours. That's only event for children who are in secondary schools. But in the main, it's Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2 children. Marvellous. That's fantastic. So remind me when it is, where it is, how do you buy the tickets? Just have a look online yeah. uh, at the Henley Literary Festival. The first weekend is uh, Saturday, the 2nd of October, and Sunday, the 3rd of October. The school events run Monday to Friday, obviously. If you're interested in the school events, if you're a teacher or you're a parent and you want to get your school to get on board, I would just say come and join our mailing list. There's, there are still tickets on sale for school events in September when the new term opens. But if you're interested for future years, and this will go on sale after Easter. So definitely join our mailing list. And, and that's for and future years as well as this year. Absolutely, absolutely. That's but great. for the public events, have a look on the website. They're all on sale now. And you can book your tickets online. You can ring the box office and uh, we will help you out. And then I noticed there was virtual sessions as well, personal sessions. So again, you book those through the website and then you just watch from home, do you? 
Exactly. So there are not all our venues will be streaming their events, but two of the venues have facilities to stream those events out at the same time, which is brilliant. So it's it widens the reach of the festival. So if you're not living in Henley and you're still interested in the event, you can join it. If you are in Henley, but you're away that weekend, you can still join it. And particularly for people who um, have accessibility issues. For people like us putting on events, it means if you had trouble getting to Henley, it's not a barrier anymore. You can still join the events. And so that's a really good, positive thing. That's fantastic. Well, that sounds really exciting. And then just one last question before you go, because I'm very excited that Michael Mulpogo is is coming along to the festival. So tell me what he's doing, because that's a real coup for you guys. He's doing two events. Sir Michael, the nation's favourite storyteller, who's just a real delight. He's been to the festival several times um, before. He's coming to do two events. One is a schools event. He's talking about um, his new novel for eight to 12-year-olds, which is called When Fishes Flew, the story of Elena's War. And then he's also doing a public event for an illustrated book, which is called The Carnival of the Animals. And he's he's reading his poems um, from that. Oh, that that would just be magical. That's what not to miss. (laughs) Jessica, that's a brilliant programme. Congratulations. And uh, I really hope they all sell out because they absolutely deserve to. Thank you very much. Well, we look forward to seeing everyone there. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. So just to repeat, you can find the programme at the website. So that's the henleyliteraryfestival.co.uk. And physical copies of the programme can be collected from the Bell Bookshop in Henley. Or just give the festival office a call as they'd love to talk you through any questions you may have. The festival runs from the 2nd to the 10th of October in person with virtual events running every Monday in September and I can promise you, you will find lots of authors you'll want to listen to. Um, Literary stars, you've got television personalities, comedians, scientists, historians, obviously all these children's authors, it's absolutely brilliant. And uh, they are capping ticket sales at 70% capacity to give everyone lots of elbow room. So lots of importance that you, you phone up and buy those tickets. It's competition time. Delighted. Hurrah, they're delighted. Nay, thrilled to offer you the chance to win two free tickets to the Henley Literary Festival in October. Now, it's quite simple to enter. All you have to do is send an email and you're going to send it to Heather and it's going to be, her address is heather at river.radio and then you just put Henley Literary Festival in the subject box and then you just need to answer this question which is really, really hard. You're going to have to think very hard about this. What are the dates of the Henley Literary Festival 2021? And then send that to Heather. We'll be taking a lucky dip from all the correct entries next week and we'll be announcing it on the show. Brilliant. Right, so we've covered quite a bit today. We've done... We have indeed. Young Adult Fiction, the Henley Literary uh, Festival... And if that isn't enough, we're now going to introduce you all to the fabulous world of classic Russian literature. What is it Mm. about Russian literature that is so beautiful and endlessly tragic and and appealing? I know it is. It's quite extraordinary. I think it's probably all the vodka they drink, but um, it really is that. It, and, and it's also sumptuous as well in in, in in many things, many of the works that you read. Uh, and I suppose because of its quite 
extraordinary history um, and tumultuous history, I think, that gives it all that depth. Yeah. Um, a very, a very long time ago, I went for a Saturday job at a bookshop. Oh, and, yes. Um, and the, obviously the, the manager said, you know, what, um, why are you interested in working at a bookshop? And of course, I told the truth and said I needed the money because I was um, saving up to buy, <laughs> to buy um, driving lessons. Because in those days, you had to pay for your own driving lessons instead of being Indeed given a you did. car. <laughs> but anyway, and um, I later found out that the reason that I didn't, I got the job, was that every every single person who went, all from my school, of course, had um, had said, oh, they wanted to go because they adored Russian literature. And I'm convinced I said that as well. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> but honesty paid. Honesty paid. Obviously. <laughs> well, um, I, I'm going to give you a little bit of a hint um, as to what my choice is um, today, okay. uh, a little bit of music. And then straight after that, there's going to be a little extract that I've read before I go into t- chat about my book. Antonina Alexandrovna stood on the platform at the Torfianaya station, counting her family and her luggage over and over to make sure that nothing had been left on the train. The well-trodden sand of the platform was firm under her feet, but the anxiety lest they miss the station remained with her and the clatter of the wheels was still in her ears, although the train was standing motionless before her eyes. This prevented her from seeing, hearing or thinking properly. Passengers who were continuing their journey were calling out goodbye and waving to her from the car, but she never noticed them. Nor did she notice that the train was leaving and realised that it had gone only when she found herself looking at the green fields and the blue sky across the empty track. The station was built of stone and had benches on either side of the entrance. The Chivagos were the only travellers who had got out at Torfianaya. They put their luggage down and sat on one of the benches. They were struck by the silence, emptiness and tidiness of the station. It seemed strange not to be surrounded by a milling, cursing mob. History had not caught up with this remote provincial life. It had not yet relapsed into savagery as at the capitals. The station nestled in a birch wood. When the train drew in, the cars were plunged into darkness. Now the shadows of the scarcely stirring trees moved lightly over their hands and faces, over the ground and the station walls and roofs, and over the platform with its clean, damp, yellow sand. It was cool in the grove, and the singing of the birds in it had an equally cool sound. Candid and pure as innocence, it pierced and carried through the wood from end to end. Two roads cut through the grove, the railroad and the country road, and both were shaded by branches which swayed like long sleeves. 
Well, as you've guessed, uh, my choice today is The Majestic Dr. Zhivago by Boris Pasternak, which it was first published to, by Feltrinelli a, in 1957. It had to be a choice, didn't it? It did. It did. Now, interesting, the plot of Dr. Zhivago is is, is extremely complicated, um, made more so by the fact that uh, Pasternak employs a multitude of characters in, in the novel who interact with each other naturally, uh, but also in unpredictable ways. And in addition, um, Pasternak is very fond of introducing a character by his or her three names and then refers to them thereafter by just one of the three names or a nickname without stating that he's referring to the same character. So you have to really keep up with the game. Oh, that sounds um, complicated. It does. It, it does. It's, it's quite a big book as well, isn't it? Oh, yeah, exactly. Now, the story opens in, in Imperial Russia with the funeral service of, um, and here's an example of the three names, Maria Nikolaevna Zhivago uh, in 1902, and that's the mother of Yuri. Uh, because Yuri's father had abandoned him and his mother, um, he's now an orphan, and he's taken by his uncle Nikolai Nikolaevich Vedenyapin to live with him. Um, events move a pace where Yuri's uncle, when Yuri's uncle moves to St. Petersburg and he places Yuri in the care of the Grumiko family in Moscow. Now, the Grumikos have a daughter called Tonya, and this is quite important uh, as we find out as we go through the story. Running alongside is the introduction, introduction of Madame Guichard with her two children, Rodion and Larissa, who we will get to know as Lara, and the rather manipulative Viktor Ipolovich Komarovsky, a well-connected, wealthy businessman who was a friend of Madame Guichard's late Belgian husband. Now, the twist there is that Komarovsky is the lover of Madame Guichard, but also he is quite keen on Lara um, and is grooming her. But by now, we've gone through the Russian, um, through the Russo-Japanese War of 1905 to 1905, which incidentally was a disaster for Imperial Russia, Um, the Japanese having trounced them and the Tsar having been advised against that campaign. And now we're in 1911, Yuri is studying medicine at the university and Tonya is studying law. But along the way, we're introduced to an interesting character called Pasha Antipov, um, something of a revolutionary and Lara's boyfriend. Um, but also, uh, is, throughout this, Yuri is writing poetry for which he's becoming quite well known in, in Russian society, mm-hmm. um, not only in the literary salons. Now, further twists and turns take us through the October Revolution and the subsequent Russian Civil War, which sees Yuri and his family. By now, Yuri is married to Tonya, and they have a son. And they're going to Tonya's family's former estate in uh, Verenikio in the Ural Mountains, basically because the revolution is going on and things are becoming very difficult in Moscow. However, unbeknownst to Yuri, Lara herself has moved to nearby um, Yuriatin with her daughter by Pasha Antipov. Um, whom Lara had married, though he, he's been since declared missing or in action presumed dead. Now, Yori had met Lara many years ago when they worked together in a field hospital where he was a doctor and she was a nurse. And it was at that time that um, whilst he was away that he, um, he, he uh, rather fell for Lara. Um, as spring came to Varenikio, Yuri goes to Yurikatin to visit the local library, and there he finds Lara. They become lovers, with Yuri visiting frequently, and one day, returning home, he's captured by a group of Bolsheviks 
that force him to join them as a medical officer. And he's gone away for two years. Nobody knows where he is, but um, he manages to escape. And he finds out that Tonya, who was pregnant with their daughter, has left for exile in Paris and had sent him a letter. She's gone with the children and the father. And the letter took five months to reach him. And rather, rather sweetly, well, not sweetly, tragically, she says she always loved him, but realised that he does not love her. Um, Komarovsky reappears, this evidence screen in the background. Um, he's telling both Yuri and Lara that he's been appointed Minister of Justice for the Far Eastern Republic and that he will smuggle them out of Russia. He impresses on Lara that her life is in danger because General Strelnikov, a brutal and murderous officer of the CPSU, is now dead. Now, the twist is that Strelnikov is, in fact, Pasha Antonov, her husband. Though, in fact, he was very much alive for the moment. Now, I know you accuse me of of, of giving the plot away, so I'm not. I'm going to leave it there because (laughs) this is almost the end of the story. Um, But what I'm going to say, um, it it is a complicated and and long novel. But the the film that was made in 1965, directed by David Lean, is actually fantastic. Now, that'll give you a distilled version. But are you recommending are you recommending the film over the book here? No, if you want if you want if you want to read his digest shortened version, then that's it. But the film does veer away from from the novel. So if you really want to know what happens to Yuri and what happens to Lara, then you must read the book. Right. So there's something, isn't there, about that sort of Bolshevik revolution, that um, transformation of Russia into the, mm. uh, the Soviet Union. That is yes. really mm. tragic. Well, it was. You see, it's just, it's very interesting because I, I, I'm, and this is only my, 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 my um, thoughts on it. I think the, whilst revolution was popping around in, or, or, or anarchism was popping up in, around Europe, Russia was very, very feudal. Um, so all of the people, apart from the aristocrats and presumably the wealthy middle class, they still employed the serfdom system. So everybody below that was owned by somebody. Yes. So that was the rightness for the the revolution because there was there was nothing so it wasn't as even if there was a middle class that was being oppressed because they would also own um anybody below that class and that I think was where the whole thing was quite cataclysmic for Russia whereas in 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 Europe for example there was uh, assassinations but that was really to pop off some from from head of state some some princess or some king but it rarely resulted in the same revolution as such um, as it happened in Russia. And of course, serfdom meant that everyone was already living um, pretty close to the uh, poverty line anyway. Yes, absolutely. Really, absolutely. Yes. And they were just living on living on the land. And and in fact, it was it was such a rural economy. But but in the cities, Moscow, St. Petersburg, fabulous wealth, of course, because it was all controlled by the establishment. Yes, yes. So I've picked um, uh, a book in that same period of time mm-hmm. and it's poetry oh, um, yeah. ah, so it's the russians excel absolutely so it's the selected poems by anna akamatova and it's mm-hmm. published by blood axe books and she of course is one of russia's greatest modern poets and this book is the complete text of her major work which is called requiem plus a review of her life um, and a translation of an autobiography that she she wrote. So she had her first book of poems published in 1912. 
and she founded a new movement in poetry. And um, despite the fact that she was really popular, amazingly talented, she had quite a hard life. She was Mm -hmm. Ukrainian, so she was born Mm -hmm. in 1889. And she married uh, the poet Gumilev. I do apologise if I've pronounced that incorrectly. Gumilev. Um, And he was shot dead in 1921. So she was 21 herself when her husband (coughs) was shot. And he was, uh, it was alleged that he was involved in an anti-Bolshevik plot. And her son was imprisoned. And she was persecuted for her work, which was deemed anti-revolutionary. And in mm. fact, her work was banned in 1925. So she entered what was called a period of silence because what she was writing, she obviously couldn't publish. Mm. But it was also really dangerous. So, um, of course, if she had published or if anybody found what she wrote, then she'd have been put in prison or possibly, um, possibly killed. So what uh, happened is that her son went into prison and for um, 17 months she fought for his release. And what that meant is that she would go every day to stand in a queue with hundreds of other mothers and wives to get any news or possibly pass some food into them. And then at night, she was spending the night writing this amazingly strong and powerful poetry all about what life was like. And that's the the cycle called The Requiem, which commemorates all of Stalin's victims and, and also something called The Poem Without a Hero, which she began in 1940 and worked on for over 20 years. Gosh. And um, it was just uh, amazing. We've got a little bit, it's not actually a bit of the, um, a poem. It's actually the prologue uh, that you've, uh, you've recorded for us. Let's just mm-hmm. listen to this now. During the terrifying years of the Yezov repressions, I spent 17 months in Leningrad prison lines. One time, someone thought they recognised me. Then a woman standing behind me, who of course had never heard my name, stirred from her own, though common to all of us, stupor, and asked in my ear, there all spoke in a whisper, Could you describe this? And I said, I can. Then something akin to a smile slipped across what once had been her face. So that's a really short piece, but I think you can feel the horror of the lines, mm. the, the mm-hmm. terrifying years that you've been spent, the, the time spent just wasting your life away, but desperate mm. to get word or to find word about mm. your, your loved one. Mm. Um, the need to whisper, the impact on the body that the lady whose face had practically disintegrated, you know, mm. that what once would have been her face. Mm. Um, the need for that suffering that won't go unnoticed. Mm. I just think it's really powerful. Mm. So what was happening is when she was writing her poetry, um, she'd have her friends round uh, of an evening and she'd write the poetry down and all her friends would memorise it. Good so Lord. Each friend would get a stanza and then at the end of the evening they'd burn it to make sure that there wasn't a trace right. of any of the poetry mm-hmm. um, left in existence. And the reason why we have that poetry today is because uh, her friends remembered it. 
and, right, uh, and I just be, think it's just yeah. amazing it's just really powerful and um it just means that we can appreciate what um what it was like and she kept the great russian word alive i think it's an amazing story absolutely uh, and i think really what is what is quite horrifying in all of this is that for the majority of people um there was not much change from the repression of the imperialistic court to the oppression of the communist government no um and, and that was it. So their lives were still as vile as they were. Maybe there might have been some concessions, but mostly where they couldn't speak still, you know, and that, I think that's the most appalling thing. Yeah, no, it's really um, mm. interesting. And I think probably that's why Russian literature is so powerful. It's because it, it has this deep heartache. That, so they, they love their country, but they have this deep heartache about it. Absolutely. And, and going and interestingly, quickly going back to Boris Pasternak, because he won the Nobel Prize for Literature yeah. after Dr. Zhivago was 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 published um, and he he accepted it. But pressure was put on him by the government. Um, so he so he, he he decided to turn it down and because he was threatened with exile. And even with all of that, he said because he was so Russian and Russia was so much within him, he couldn't risk being exiled if he'd gone to Stockholm and not wow. return. So yes. you're right. That it, Russia is the very soul of the Russian people. The land is the very soul of the people, yes. almost regardless of who governs them. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, right, so I think we're coming to an end, aren't we? Yes, and you're listening to River Radio, just to remind you, Voice of the Thames Valley, so don't forget we want to hear from you if you've got anything to tell us about, um, any books you're reading, get in touch. So now, this is the last chance if you wish to win two free tickets to the Henley Literary Festival, all you have to do is email heather at heather at river.radio with the dates of this year's literary festival in Henley, and we will email the winner next week and we'll announce the winner next week. Absolutely. So get, onto your, get onto your emails and start typing. Absolutely. Heather's expecting your emails now. And all we need to know is the dates. It's not, it's not a trick. You've no. heard that we've told you five million times to, over the course of today <laughs> and last week. And, of course, you can look it on their website, which is yep. henleyliteraryfestival.co.uk, and that's where you can buy tickets too. And, and if that's not a gift to the answer, I can't say what is. <laughs> I've got to say, it's well worth it. So a really big thank you to everyone for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, thanks to uh, Jessica Dean from the Henley Literary Festival, from um, Tilly Brogan for Tilly's YA Fiction Addiction, uh, from Julian and from Mike Burden for Readings. And the books that we've been recommending today are Sally Rooney, Beautiful World, Where Are You?, published by Faber and Faber. A Master of and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov. Miss Dior, A Story of Courage and Couture by Justine Picardy, published by Faber. Together by Jamie Oliver, published by Michael Joseph. Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo, published by Orion. Selected Poems by Anna Akmanotova, published by Bloodux Books. And Dr Shivago by Boris Pasternak, published by Vintage Classics. 
And next week, we'll be chatting with Chantelle from the Little Bookshop in Cookham to recommend her favourite autumnal reads. Excellent. So we look forward to you joining us next Wednesday between 11 and 12 noon on River Radio. And if you're not able to join us, then never fear, because you can listen again directly from our website. And Turning Pages is available as a podcast. You just search for Turning Pages on River Radio, and that's how you find the podcast. Goodbye. Black and whisper